0: To Soul Stories, Deep, Open, and True, a production of the 224 Ecospace, where changemakers work, create, and lead. I'm Shelly Best, and I'll be your guide. So it was the fall of 1968 and I was a six-year-old colored girl living in Norfolk, Connecticut. How did we get there? My father was a civil rights activist, and he thought that we should put our bodies on the line and live the cause. Now, as a six-year-old in Norfolk, Connecticut, I remember kind of observing my family and knowing that stuff was a little messed up And I was concerned that the grown-ups didn't really know what was going on at that time. After all, it was the 60s, and some of you can relate to what I'm talking about. So on this particular day, I was laying on the Formica kitchen table, you know, the kind with the chrome trim around the edges and the matching red chairs. I was laying on the kitchen table, and I was coloring in a protest sign for my father that I had stenciled for him. He was going to be marching on the green of Litchfield, Connecticut, (laughs) and I wanted my father to have a really good sign. And so the sign I was working on was one that I had seen in Ebony magazine, and it said, I am a man. I am a man. And I was really serious about this poster. And at the time, my father was away at National Guard drill, and I was working on the poster. And I was really, you know, involved in it. And so at the time, I was playing a 45 record. James Brown, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. Say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. So I'm laying on the kitchen table and I'm coloring in this sign and I know I feel sort of a storm rumbling in my family, but I tell you that within the course of the next year, we were going to be in a full-fledged hurricane. You see, in in the fall of 1968, it was a few months beyond the assassination of Martin Luther King, so stuff was getting kind of edgy in community. I remember the funeral of martin luther king my father was crying and i was sitting on his lap and i was crying and we were watching the floor model television we only got three channels in connecticut at that time channel 3 channel 8 channel 30 and we're watching the funeral of martin luther king and it was a horse-drawn carriage that was dragging his coffin through the street and my Father was crying and I was crying because we were starting to wonder what's going to happen to the movement now that Martin Luther King is dead. And so we just sort of cried about what was happening in life. You see, my father, even though he was a soldier and even though he was an activist, he was mad most of the time. He was mad at the system. He was mad at injustice. He was mad about his boss on the job. He was mad about a lot of things. It was that kind of time. And you see, you have to understand that my parents came from an age where they were like, really good Negro people. See, really good Negroes were like the press and curl kind of people, like pressed shirts and really clean and polished people living up in Norfolk. We wanted to be polished people in Norfolk, as if the press and curl would make a difference in a place like Norfolk, being the only black family in the town. But anyway, that's what my parents wanted to do. And in the meantime, things were getting kind of funny with my older brother and sister. See, I was six, but my brother was 15, and my sister was 16. And so even though my parents were the press and curl clean type people, my older brother and sister were starting to evolve into something else. It was the 60s, if you can remember the times those neat, clean parents started to raise these different kinds of teenagers. See, my mother at the time, she was really focused on my baby sister who was four years younger than me. So her hands were full, she wasn't into the movement, she just wanted to take care of my baby sister. And then my older sister, Sandy, who was 12 years older than me, Sandy was really into fashion and style, and Sandy was the first one to decide in our family that she was going to have an Afro, which was really radical in my family at that time. And Sandy had these really cool go-go boots, and some of you don't understand the significance of white patent leather go-go boots, (laughs) but my sister Sandy was super cool with these go-go boots, and she started cutting off her skirts and hiding the fact that she was wearing mini skirts to school because my parents didn't know that she had a secret wardrobe that she would carry in her bag along with the white go-go boots. And then meanwhile, my older brother, who was nine years older than me, He was a jock, so people liked him because he played basketball and he played soccer. So people liked him, they enjoyed him, they thought he was good people, he was enjoyable. But I can remember as a child kind of watching what's happening with my brother and my sister and I knew something was going on, but at the time I didn't really fully understand that they were high, they were tripping, they were doing all kinds of drugs (laughs) that my parents didn't understand at the time. And so I can recall going out in the backyard one day, and my brother was sitting there in this, like, fringe jacket. He had his fringe on, and he had one of those headbands, and he had these little round John Lennon sunglasses. And he was just sort of sitting up on a rock, and he was like, Hey, June, make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Hey, so, don't let it into your heart. Then you can start to make it better. You have to understand, better, better. Ah! That was my brother. And as this six-year-old, I'm kind of like, something's not right here. And see, there was... A difference in how my brother got treated, who was younger than my sister, and how my sister got treated. Anytime my sister wanted to go out, she had to bring me. Anytime my brother went out, nobody said anything. So my sister would go out to these events and bring me with her. And I remember they would do really weird stuff, like we'd go out into the woods and we'd park cars in the middle of the woods, I'm a little six-year-old with my sister, and they would all dance around the cars, and then sometimes they would just stare. As a child, I knew something was coming, and I knew my parents were not fully prepared for that something. My father, he had a different relationship with me than the older two. It was like we were a new family for the younger two. And my father would take me to the activist meetings because he wanted me to learn about the cause. And he was a leader of this group called Concern, which was about interracial gatherings of people and like socialists and writers and artists would all come together. And a lot of them smoked. I remember the smell of that you know, tobacco in the air and they would talk about the cause and the movement. And then my father decided that I needed to have a sense of independence. I needed to have a sense of what it was to be an independent young woman and so he would take me out to the front yard and have me gather worms so I could have my own business gather night crawlers and so <laughs> I'd go out with my flashlight and I had a tub and I would gather these night crawlers and we'd sell them for 65 cents a dozen and I was making good money. So about a year later, I was making lots of money because I diversified my product line. I was also selling these little pot holders that you make on the little loom. I was selling those too, as well as my worm. So I was making good money. And I remember my brother coming up to me in my room and I was supposed to be asleep and he came up. And he's like, hey, can I I get some of your money? And I'm like, (laughs) why? I I need your money because I'm going to be hitchhiking to a concert called Woodstock. And I need your money so that way I can go to the concert. And I'm like, okay, sure, take my money. So he he took my money and he disappeared for two days and then come back for a couple of days. Didn't fully understand what Woodstock was, but that's where my brother went. Now, my sister Sandy was upset because she wanted to go to Woodstock too, but my mother wouldn't let her out of the house. And so she just sat around the house that day, just sort of staring at the wall. Now I know she was tripping. She was (laughs) tripping in the house. The next morning, early in the morning, she got up and she came into my bedroom and she said, Shelly, I'm going up into the woods and I'm taking a walk with our bulldog and I'm Afghan. And that's where I'm going. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) So my mother got up in the morning and she's like, Where's Sandy? And I'm like, she took a walk in the woods with a bulldog and an Afghan. And my mother's like, we don't have a bulldog. (laughs) So next thing I know, they call the state police. And the state police, because we didn't have regular police in Norfolk, Connecticut, so the state police had arrived and they said to me, okay, what I want you to do, go get some of her shoes so we can pick up her scent and we can find her. So I went and picked out these lovely green suede chunk heel shoes with the little buckle on the front and I brought them to the police so they could get her scent and so they started looking for her and my father was at National Guard Drill that weekend so they called my father at Camp Dempsey, because that was the governor at the time, and had my father come home from drill. And at the time, there were these police cars and all this activity and people looking for my sister. And as this little then seven-year-old child, I'm sitting on the porch and I'm kind of watching all this going on and people are seeing me but not seeing me, they see me but they don't see me and I see the cars and I see the activity and all of a sudden I hear this sound in the atmosphere and all the leaves on our lawn start blowing around and all of a sudden out of the sky a helicopter lands on our front yard and there is my dad jumping out in his military uniform. He has come to help with the search to find my sister, Sandy. And they see me, but they don't see me. And when it became about nightfall, all of a sudden they found Sandy, and they brought her into the house, and the afghan was wrapped around her shoulders. An afghan, those crocheted blankets with the black and the little granny squares in the middle, and... They had the afghan around Sandy's shoulders and she had leafs in her hair and apparently she had also taken my father's ivory-handled rifle, but she had lost it up in the woods. Well, I was glad to see Sandy. She saw me, but she didn't see me. And I heard them say, she had a bad trip. So she looked at me, and she saw me, but she didn't see me. And they put her in the station wagon with the wood sides, and they were going to take her down to Newtown State Hospital. So they put Sandy in the car, and at the time, she saw me, but she didn't see me. And then all of a sudden, the radio came on, and Sandy looked at me and recognized me, and they started singing. Been listening to Soul Stories Deep, Open, and True, a production of the 224 Eco Space where change makers work, create, and lead. Our co producer and sound designer is Dan Warren of Shattered Icons. Tell us what you think. Find Soul Stories on Facebook and soulstories.global. And look for me, Reverend Dr. Shelley Best, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram like, share, and follow.